Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nation's oldest public affairs discussion forum. I am Cole Thomas Nerides on behalf of the member-led arts forum here at the Commonwealth, an educational content curator with the Department of Diversity, Equity, and Community at San Francisco Opera. We are pleased to welcome club members as well as new listeners who are tuned in today. We would love for us all to be gathered at the Remby Rock Auditorium with you, but circumstances dictate that today's program be virtual rather than in person as originally scheduled. For any friends and supporters who could not be with us, and those of you who just can't wait to watch it again, the recording of this program will be available within the next few days on the club's website in the watch and listen section. Our topic for today, who is Cleopatra? Indeed. For centuries, the persona of Cleopatra has been molded as an archetype of female power and beauty. Yet, as with most tellings of history, her story has been mostly written by men who never knew her. Providing another context, in concurrence with San Francisco Opera's centennial season and the world premiere of John Adams' Antony and Cleopatra, we've assembled a panel of women in the arts to ask and answer the question, who is Cleopatra? How has she been misjudged, mistreated, and misportrayed throughout history and the arts? Moderating our panel today is Erin Neff, member of the renowned San Francisco Opera Chorus. She's joined by Rita Lucarelli, Associate Professor of Egyptology at University of California, Berkeley, Elkana Pulitzer, Director of San Francisco Opera's world premiere production of John Adams, Antony, and Cleopatra, and Sherry Young, founder and executive director of the African-American Shakespeare Company. We invite our panelists to ask questions of each other and even of this audience as we progress through this hour together. We also invite you, our viewers, to submit questions. We'll do our best to answer them all. Without further ado, I hand things over to our moderator, Aaron Neff, and this distinguished panel to discuss the question, who is Cleopatra? Aaron, please take it away. Thank you, Cole. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Thank you all for joining us here today. Um, this, of course, is prompted by the Antony and Cleopatra that just premiered last week at the San Francisco Opera. Super excited to be here talking about Cleopatra. I would love to ask Rita for you to begin and give us some historical context of who Cleopatra was and the time period in which she lived. Yes, thank you. Hi, everyone. So, yeah, it's my pleasure to be here indeed and give you and provide an historical, historical context for Cleopatra and especially how she looks like uh, in, uh, in the ancient sources. And so I prepared some images too. Um, but I, um, I would say we have to uh, start thinking to the fact that we did not find did not find the, the body of Cleopatra, so we don't know how she looks like. Since one of the first questions is always how Cleopatra looks like, uh, how she was seen by his contemporaries, we don't know exactly that. But what we know is how she wanted to be represented, and uh, I hope to show today, and then we can discuss it that her chosen identity was the identity of an Egyptian woman a royal Egyptian woman. And uh, the, the portraits that we have from uh, of her as uh, an Hellenistic and then uh, uh, Roman uh, style female figure uh, are indeed 
to be contextualized uh, within Roman Egypt. And um, in fact, she uh, was the daughter of Ptolemy uh, XII, who was one of the last uh, rulers of the Ptolemaic uh, dynasty in Egypt. So they were Macedonians uh, originally, but uh, at the time when uh, um, Cleopatra uh, ruled in Egypt, uh, the, the, the family was there since more than 200 years. So from, from, from that, we also understand why she, she felt this Egyptian identity. And uh, also um, what was characteristic of the Ptolemaic uh, uh, dynasties that uh, um, the, the queen often was a co-ruler of the man. Uh, and that was something that Romans, the Romans could not really accept. It wasn't in, in the Roman tradition, while instead within the pharaonic Egypt, uh, within previous historical period in Egypt, we have powerful queens. So I'll show you some images uh, um, that could uh, really illustrate um, how powerful these Egyptian royal, royal women were and how Cleopatra really wanted ident identify herself as one of them. I'll try to uh, now share my... Green. Let me see. Can you see here uh, the the screen? My screen in the yes. Way? Okay. Yep. Great. Right. So uh, I'll just start. So I'll, I'll go through those very quickly, and then if you like, we can go back to it. But this is a bit the classical statue of uh, Cleopatra, Hellenistic Ptolemaic style. So you can see it's not the typical pharaonic Egyptian figure, but there is a strong Egyptian element and it is this triple ureus. And the cobra, the ureus, was a, a very powerful royal symbol in ancient Egypt since the third millennium BC. And so to, um, while the pharaonic kings generally had uh, one or two ureus, ureus uh, the, in the Ptolemaic period, we have queens with three, uh, three of these cobras. On, uh, so the, this was definitely a very strong royal Egyptian royal symbol. But we have image, beautiful images of the queen um, in Egyptian temples, especially in the temple of the goddess Hathor in Dendera, which is in southern southern Egypt, Egypt even more south. Um, than Luxor. Um, and uh, in, the, in, in the temple of Dendera, she appears totally Egyptian, like an Egyptian queen, but also very often as an Egyptian goddess. And I guess we will talk about the divinity, divinity of Cleopatra later, but um, you can see here the, the headdress with the a solar disk and the uh, cow horns, uh, which were proper of the goddess Isis or Ator, uh, the signs, uh, divine signs uh, of the, the Ankh, the, the life sign, uh, which was a, a divine attribute, but also the, the scepter that was instead a royal attribute. So she's queen and she's a goddess on those temples especially the one in and there. And here another one uh, from uh, another very beautiful temple, the temple of the god Horus, the falcon god, 
uh, all found uh, uh, in Edfu, also in uh, southern Egypt, and in the Ptolemaic period, uh, uh, ruler the rule the Ptolemaic rulers, and then the Romans too were still building a new um, um, new temples and uh, add. Uh, uh, um, extra building to the temples that were there already, and they were depicting themselves as pharaohs. And so the queens, the, the Ptolemaic queens, were also present there, uh, including Cleopatra. And this is probably the most famous uh, representation of uh, Cleopatra with his uh, son, Caesarion, or uh, Ptolemy fif- uh, 15. Um, and here, uh, well, it's only part of the of this uh, big scene, this large scene. They are offering uh, to the gods Osiris and Isis. Oops, and that one. So this is also a typical offering scene of Egyptian temples that we find really since the pharaonic period, second and first millennium BC. And they, uh, you can see also the, all the inscriptions are in hieroglyphs, the names of the king and queen in a cartouche. So the tradition is really the pharaonic one. And uh, we, we can see from all these sources how Cleopatra really indeed identified herself as an Egyptian queen queen, uh, we could say as an African queen, and uh, uh, really went back to the Egyptian tradition. Um, Rita, I want to just ask you, since we're just looking at these images, we will be talking more about race in a bit, but just to comment a little bit, I assume this is a bas-relief, although this is in black and white. There was a slide a couple slides ago that had some coloration, and we're seeing, I just want people to take note of uh, features and coloration as uh, potential hints about her race. Thank you. I just wanted to mention that. Yes, sure. Indeed, all those reliefs were originally colored. We know all statues in antiquity actually were colored too. Um, This is in black and white, but um, I like this photo because it really shows also these beautiful details uh, of her uh, headdress. The vulture was another symbol of queenship in ancient Egypt. The the vulture goddess was very important. And those are really old symbols. So again, in the tradition of the uh, Ptolemaic dynasty, all those pharaonic symbols were uh, um, were used still in temples, in religious sculpture. And um, here we, we see instead a, a relief representing the father of Cleopatra. And uh, that's an important figure because indeed uh, Cleopatra started to be co-ruler of his father when she was just 17. Her father was a prolific builder, some some scholars say, well, he was a prolific builder because he was actually a weak king, and so, but he wanted to show to be strong. Uh, but thanks uh, uh, to him, indeed, uh, by uh, Cleopatra became co-ruler and then ruler of Egypt. Um, and uh, it's in- interesting how the, the same name of Cleopatra, it means the glory of his father. And uh, it's interesting that in ancient Egyptian as well, we don't have a, ter- a term for queen. Queens were always indicated as uh, the king's wife, the king's daughter, uh, they were uh, they had titles connected to the male figure. Uh, despite that, some of them became 
rulers and had to rule like pharaohs. And I'll show you other powerful queens in a moment. But um, I also wanted to uh, show you this very interesting uh, statues that uh, was discovered in sandstone. We was discovered near the temple of Hathor in Dendera again. And uh, first was um, uh, interpreted as the statue of two gods, two Egyptian gods. Uh, but later on, uh, uh, an Egyptologist uh, um, gave an in- interesting interpretation, and I agree with her, that basically those are the twins, Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene II, of uh, um, Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Uh, and uh, they, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, they, they are also depicted uh, in the Egyptian style with the side lock that is typical of Egyptian uh, children. And they hold some snakes, and it's not very evident in this picture, but they represent also the moon and the sun. And it is said in the sources they, they, were, they, they were born during the eclipse. So there is a lot of Egyptian symbology there. Maybe you cannot hear the eye of Horus also. Uh, very powerful Egyptian amulet. So, and this is really a unique piece that um, uh, especially Alexander Helios has never been represented. We have some uh, representation only of the of the daughter, Cleopatra Selene, but not uh, of him. Rita, can... I'm, I'm just going to interrupt you just for a second because there's so much yeah. happening here. Well, um, I'm trying to... <laughs> um, uh, I'd love to just touch on just the the um, the divinity figures and how uh, that played into Cleopatra's uh, her, her political strategy and why this was important. Um, could you speak a little bit about that, or maybe Elkanah? I'd love to hear you, and you did a lot of research on this for the opera. Sure, I don't know if Elkanah wants to. Uh, Rita, why don't you, you know, continue and I'll sort of try to, um, I mean, everything you're raising, we have some representations of some of these aspects in the production, which I can speak to, but, um, you're, you're doing great. So I'm learning yeah, a lot. I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to be short, <laughs> although there's so much interesting material I would like to share, but, um, of course, there is also some great bibliography on Cleopatra that is possible to, to check. But I, I think the visuals are important. And for instance, see the difference of how Cleopatra then is uh, represented in, instead, for instance, in this marble bust of Cleopatra. Of uh, uh, This is much later, 30 BC. Um, and on the, on the coins, she appears with Mark Antony. Oops. The interesting thing, so this is, of course, uh, really the Roman style, the, the Roman Cleopatra, which has been also seen as less beautiful. Um, but, well, the, the, the conception of what is beautiful, of course, depends from uh, um, the, the, the context. And uh, this kind of representation of Cleopatra, uh, Roman style, was also a sign of the, the, the a powerful woman within the Roman world. So it's actually, uh, it was a positive way to represent uh, Cleopatra uh, as well. As well as in the coins, the, the very interesting thing is that generally in those, uh, in those kind of coins, the wife of the ruler appears um, b- behind him on the same face of the coins, while for uh, 
the coins with Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Cleopatra is uh, uh, her own side of the coin. So almost as if she's really important and Mark Antony recognized that. I thought it was a really great um, um, aspect, a great detail to, to point out to. Um, just to conclude, uh, as I told you, Cleopatra was following the tradition of powerful Egyptian queens, and definitely everybody knows Ashepsut, uh, the so-called, uh, it's been called the, the queen pharaoh. Uh, Ashepsut actually in, in many portraits appears also as a woman. She changed uh, her uh, representations only when really she became of, um, the only ruler, because at the beginning she also she was she was a co-ruler with her stepson. So in the moment in which she became the ruler, she wanted to be represented as a male. Indeed, we see the royal beard, the typical of the pharaohs, um, and so it, it, it's, um, it, it became the symbol of a very powerful queen. And another important figure; those are all of the so-called eighteen dynasties. So. Much earlier, we are here at um, around 1300 BC, um, uh, the 18 dynasty in ancient Egypt. Um, so Queen Tiye is the mother of the famous pharaoh Akhenaton, the so-called heretic pharaoh. Uh, and indeed, speaking about race, uh, generally, uh, this particular sculpture is used to show the African origin of uh, ancient Egyptians, especially ancient Egyptian in the south. And Quintilla, we know from the sources, was politically powerful, powerful and influenced, as well as the wife of Akhenaton, the beautiful Nefertiti. We have representation of her with uh, also crowns, which are warrior crowns. So beside uh, the female beauty, there was always the aspect of the warrior, of the powerful queen that Cleopatra embedded as well. And this could be connected to the idea also of feminine divinity in ancient Egypt. Uh, Goddesses in ancient Egypt are benevolent, but they can also be dangerous and they can be aggressive. They have uh, a power that can go in, in two directions. So the, the idea of having a strong ruler who in certain uh, moments can be even cruel and is connected to violent acts is actually um, as, attested in, uh, in the Egyptian sources also before. But I don't want to talk too much, actually, because uh, I'm also looking forward to, to hear what... All of you are going to say this was just to to provide some visuals for you and Thank you. Have the discussion. Well, Thank you. if I could ask a question, Rita, I always thought the Romans did not like Cleopatra because of her sway with Julius Caesar and then later with Mark Antony. So I find it interesting that they are creating a coin with her as a Roman because they were very against her acquiring any wealth from Rome or their country. Um, could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, well, those um, those coins uh, uh, were, of course, produced uh, in the time when Cleopatra was uh, um, in a good relationship 
with the important Roman men. So uh, we have Cleopatra has been traveling also to Rome. Very, we don't know if very often in more trips or just one longer trips, but she was in Rome. And we have sources where actually they they are not completely negative. They they recognize that she's a powerful woman. The only thing is that they could not understand how a woman could be so powerful. That was not part of the Roman tradition. Uh, where only indeed men could hold uh, political powers. So, but um, we have also uh, Roman sources where Cleopatra is not seen so negatively. Um, and we have what what is never mentioned is that beside the Roman, we have also, for instance, early medieval Muslim sources, uh, which really talk about Cleopatra as an uh, well-educated uh, polyglot woman a lot. And uh, also those uh, early medieval authors, they've been use, using the same Roman sources. So it's not that there's not nothing good about Cleopatra in the Roman authors, only let's say in the European tradition, for some reason, I mean, we know the reason. <laughs> the negative sides of Cleopatra have been highlighted. I Can I jump in? Uh, I mean, in terms of the minting of the coins, those were also related to the donations of Alexandria, right. which was not an event that was controlled by Rome, you know, exclusively. I mean, it was Antony's assertion in, you know, sort of the Roman view of recarving and recalibrating the entire sort of political agenda to reallocate all the lands to their children and uh, erase Caesarian, as you had pointed out earlier, to sort of the, you know, the rightful position as um, descendant of Julius Caesar, you know, her former lover and, and child. Um, but some also argue that was a marriage, right, between the two of them and that the minting of the coin solidified um, their political position and assertion that the new Roman Empire would rest seated in Alexandria and not Rome, um, which obviously failed in terms of the right. long-term picture. But one of the things just I also want to mention is that we talked a lot about, you know, why, why is she glorified in Roman eyes? Um, even in the references, you know, in Plutarch, if you look at her death and the honorable suicide, and uh, even in the Shakespeare play, you know, Caesar gets the last word, and it's one of eloquence and allowing them to to uh, be buried together, and um, you know that they'll be um, born together, you know, not lauded, but ultimately his victory is more potent if he has had an adversary who he's triumphed over, who was a worthy one. And so giving her more authority uh, in a way also was about asserting his dominance over that authority. And though the donations of Alexandria, was that a tipping point for Rome in because she was allocating all these regions to her children? Yes. Yeah. Antony and, and she essentially created a ceremony, um, you know, that I would say sent um, <laughs> some serious ripples across the Mediterranean to Rome and created uh, Octavian. And we haven't really talked about who is Octavian. He became, you know, Caesar Augustus. Um, he uh, 
would essentially hire Plutarch um, to write an account of all of these, you know, narratives. Um, he would commission um, the Aeneid and become, you know, a descendant of Apollo himself in terms of how they're all fashioning themselves as gods. Um, and um, yeah, he also did some dirty dealings where he went into the Vestal Virgin's temple and supposedly got Antony's will and read it aloud um, in the Republic and essentially said that Anthony wished to be buried in Alexandria. Um, so suddenly, which was again, not even to honor or be acknowledged um, in terms of citizenship. If you were not Roman and of Rome, you know, you were essentially for sure a second class, um, not even citizen. So the idea that for Rome, Anthony would want to be buried in Egypt or have allegiance or reallocate Roman seat of authority, you know, to Alexandria was um, preposterous and, um, you know, leveled the playing field for Rome to support Caesar declaring war against Egypt, of course, not a civil war against Antony, which is really what it was. And so what we know of Cleopatra is that she began her reign as the as the leader when she was 17 years old. Yes. Really? Yes. That was 18. And, I thought it was 18. Well, and it was a co-rulership, right? Because she she, yeah. she co-ruled with two individual brothers, you know, mm -hmm. and then of course the old, uh, you know, marrying one's sibling and and then having them killed—that was very much a part of the the royal machinations as well. She also witnessed her sister being dragged, you know, through the uh, streets of Rome in triumph. Um, uh, by Julius Caesar. So she knew what a Roman triumph looked like and how um, people were treated. And so at the end of our story, when uh, she gets confirmation that that's what Caesar intends for her, um, you know, it's even more reason why she will um, commit suicide. Because as we all know of um, great rulers, you cannot step down right there is there's either you rule or you die there's really nothing in between um and what makes her remarkable in history i think there have been plenty of queens who co-ruled who did die um but she went out on her own terms you know yeah and um, it's interesting because the the case of the su suicide of cleopatra can be contextualized in this ethics of suicide in antiquity because we have different cases and uh, different reasons. Even there is an ancient Egyptian tale where there is a case of a man who wants to kill himself because he's unhappy about the political and social situation uh, around him, which is very different uh, from the suicide of a leader, of a ruler. Uh, and, and then generally in, in similar case the, the cause is uh, pudor so-called so basically the reason is no longer being what you used to be let's say and then you just uh, want to escape captivity and so of course this together with despair also for uh, now, see that's uh, very interesting to me because when i think about cleopatra one of the primary things that how fierce she is and was throughout her life, she did so many remarkable things that we as modern day women um, in society, I, I couldn't even fathom of. 
Um, just the fact of, uh, so she had Julius Caesar as one of her lovers, and um, it was well known that she wrapped herself in the rug, you know, which was portrayed with the Elizabeth um, Taylor. And while that seemed like very Hollywood-esque, you know, antics, apparently it was a true uh, situation. Um, and at such a young age, she was deemed as being um, a, a, a whore to some people. But in my eyes, it was about survival. Um, people thought that she was manipulative. And in my eye is, you know, a woman is called manipulative. A man is called being strategic. So to me, as a young female ruler, she used everything in her assets. She used her beauty. She used her sexuality. She used her strength. And for some, she was demonized for that. But she was such a survivor that I'm a little surprised that she would kill herself instead of trying to reinvent herself like she had in her um, X amount of years of ruling. Well, she certainly had a flair for the dramatic. And um, she was an incredibly highly educated person that was all about power. Probably every single perspective was about how to remain in power as people in power do. They just, you're not necessarily, your goal is to be happy in life, but your goal is to remain happy. And this was a woman who was very educated, right? A polyglot, um, the only uh, ruler who spoke of this monarchy, of this dynasty, who spoke Egyptian. She spoke the people's language. And I, I definitely, there's lots of historical references to the drama of it. Um, comparing her, or Alcana, I wanted to ask you about her, her, um, her coupling with these different divinity and how that was strategically um, really smart. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, again, speaking just more towards the the Shakespeare and the text embedded in it that, that goes back to Plutarch and, again, a Roman lens of the accounts of the time. Um, but we know that, again, back to what Rita's talking about in terms of the Hellenistic influence, which predates uh, Roman gods, right? That's a lot of the inspiration comes from the Hellenistic Greek um sort of origin stories, right, of, of those um, gods and goddesses. So she had that through, um, you know, the Ptolemaic uh, line from Alexander the Great and her um, Macedonian heritage, right? And then she also wisely um, took from the uh, gods and goddesses of Egypt. And so she was kind of a hybrid of Aphrodite and Isis, and um, Antony identified with Hercules and also with Osiris. And, um, and so this idea of, of taking um, kind of an amalgamation or hippogriff of different um, religious iconography from varying sources and presenting that to the public uh, seems to me extremely savvy because you're not really omitting anyone who, who of any particular faith or um, interest in terms of the narrative, like that is for sure um, a, a great way of gathering the people. And in terms of the, the some of the um, biographies about um, her, the Cleopatra by um, Schiff that, you know, uh, won a Pulitzer and, and is a really fun read, 
Um, she talks about also how Cleopatra did an Egyptian ceremony uh, and went, um, you know, on a barge next to a deified um, cow that was sacred and traveled to different towns and really um, fully embraced and embodied and um, elevated um, you know, her people's faith and um, and was the embodiment of Isis. And, you know, what does it mean to rule believing that you are truly divine? Um, I'm sure it's an entirely different set of existential questions that one wakes up with compared to just being mortal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that uh, she, cho- she, she chose a, an, a title um, that is New Isis. So it's like sort of reincarnation of the older Egyptian Isis. At the same time, she, she took also the, the Greek title of Thea, goddess. So indeed, as you say, she wanted to make everybody happy. But the tradition anyway to become a goddess is also traditionally at least for the ancient Egyptians was for the king and the queen to uh, to become intermediary between the divine world uh, and the people and, and and let's not forget that there was also a cult of Cleopatra uh, which in Egypt which survived uh, 300 around 350 years after her death there are still statues of Cleopatra as goddess that were venerated in temples and so it was pretty impressive the, the way she she became popular despite the the, the, the suicide that she still was considered goddess that's uh I'm sorry, her being goddess is just a testament to um, what people do with social media. You know, if you want to, if you, you're in a a culture where your survival is you have to kill your brother and mothers are killing their sons and husbands, then elevating yourself to a deity is really the best way to assure do not touch this person. So to me, mm. that's just very smart. You know, you have the, the winged eyes, like fashion look. Um, she had the um, breastbone, like decor around her, her neck and shoulders. And that is the best way to elevate yourself to keep you safe. And also it's a PR, you know, you go around and you're in all this garb with your entourage um, that is great publicity. <laughs> so she was also the wealthiest woman in the world at her time, right? The uh, the Nile and the abundance of that in terms of fertility of crops. She did have to manage droughts and starvation and allocation of grains. But you know, Rome wanted her in alliance because of her wealth and her resources, and um, so that's a big deal too, right? In terms of she wasn't just some you know sort of bit player at the table i mean she was uh, an essential ally for rome in order to fund armies you know i mean military takes money and people and she had the money for sure so do you think it was problematic for her that she was a woman or do you think it worked in her favor would this situation have been different for a man this is male or female she was incredibly intelligent what sort of besides that the ruler the rulers in rome were not 
psyched about uh, the fact that she was a woman and maybe that goes into some sort of uh, comparison. Yeah, Sherry. I think that they discounted her. I think as a woman, the Romans did not really equate her at their level. So they just probably discounted her early on. But um, as a woman, I believe that she was able to kind of, and I'll use their words, manipulate relationships, uh, situation that she was able to stronghold her relationship with um, Caesar and others in Rome to the point where she kind of safeguarded herself and they didn't see it coming. Kind of like, well, I won't, I won't make a comparison. <laughs> well, certainly a man could not have had children with Caesar, with Caesar or Anthony. Well, that's the other, yeah, the dynamics of like, um, you know, all this about seduction. And um, I mean, the positive side is as a political force to be reckoned with, she created progeny that created, you know, a bloodline alliance between Rome and Alexandria between two great nations. And so arguably, what is more effective politically in the grand scheme of things than to birth a child who is essentially the heir to two different kingdoms? Um, a man cannot do that, just to be clear. Um, but on the flip side, there's all this, you know, she's a gypsy, she's a whore, she's a seductress. You know, he um, is the bellows for her, um, you know, heat, all that. That is the cliche of Cleopatra being essentially like a sex kitten. Um, again, denying and, and um, diminishing the potency of her ability to create these alliances and have these children. Yeah, and uh, speaking about that again, you know, the, the cliche indeed is that the Romans did not like her. But for instance, I was looking into uh statues of Cleopatra as a goddess, one has been found in Rome near an Isis temple because the Egyptian cults, especially the cult of Isis and Osiris, became very popular in Rome. So the, Ro the Romans were the first Egyptomaniacs. <laughs> so they, they basically, you know, they brought, they, there are more obelisks in Rome today than in Egypt. Mm, because wow. they, they took them out and brought them to Rome. It's, mm -hmm. Kind of crazy, but to believe. But I always tell my students that if you want to look at obelisk, go to Rome. <laughs> and so, you know, there, there was a fascination um, in within the Roman world for the queen. It, it's not just the the sources that depict her as a war. Those are the those, the, the sources that have been. At least that's uh, my understanding. It's been used uh, mostly also in later traditions. Uh, and uh, even Shakespeare has been influenced uh, by... That, that leads us to uh, sort of how she's represented in modern day. Also, uh, I want to touch on what Alcana just said, how she's described as a whore, as a gypsy. And uh, gypsies, uh, we know, tend are, are dark-skinned. Um, well, let's open up this discussion about her race and what she, where she, if she was African, if she was Eastern European, um, is this important? Was it important then? Is it important now? Sherry. I, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Sherry. Well, 
Um, you know, I, I think race gives justification for um, lowering status of people, depending on where you are. And the African continent is very wide and vast. There's a rainbow of shades and cultures within that continent. So um, while I've heard and read a lot that she's Macedonian uh, in in features, um, no one knows of, or I haven't heard of where her mother's from. And I heard that her mother was from African descent. Which part of Africa, I don't know. Of course, you know, I'm, I'll leave that to Rita about the... <laughs> the study of um, Egypt, but uh, you know, I, I I believe that race uh, race does matter because it tells part of the story, um, part of the experience, and uh, you see that when they have the two different figures of her in Rome, she has a very narrow nose that's a little bit, you know, crooked down. And when you see her um, from the Egyptian statues, it's a little bit different. And they wing the eyes and have the eyelids a little bit broader and then upswept. So uh, I think people want to claim those who are descendant from them and, uh, you know, I will always say that Cleopatra is um, the Egyptian queen and I, uh, she's of, of some African descent in her. What percentage? I don't know. And Sherry, do you think that it was important at while she was alive, what race she was? I think it has some importance. I don't think it was everything because they seem to accept um, her at face value. I think they love the wealth of Egypt. They uh, Egypt was so plentiful that there were rumors if you have a certain crop in Egypt, that crop would be four times as great. If they had like multiple births, you know, if, if a cow had one calf um, in Egypt, they would have three calves, you know, in the same birth. So Egypt was so wealthy. I think race wasn't the primary um, factor in a lot of the ways she's written about, but it was more about who she was, what she bring, what she did that really, you know, was the primary focus of a lot of the things that I was reading about um, Mm -hmm. Cleopatra. Um, But in a modern day context, especially being an African-American woman, we like to identify with who else in this world and in historical content was disqualified of being from um, African descent. Like, where are those benefits that we can kind of link and say, yes, this is part of our ancestor. So to the modern day context, it's very important. When it was happening uh, during her time, I haven't read anything where that was the main issue because if they wanted to trash, if the Romans or anyone else wanted to trash Cleopatra, they could have brought up the race as an issue. And that doesn't seem to be part of the conversation. Elkanah, would you like to speak to this? Um, I mean, I, I just, I think what's interesting is if you think about the amount of cross pollination of ideas and of peoples across the Mediterranean, um, you know, for, I don't know, maybe a thousand years prior um, her, 
earth. Um, I agree that I think it becomes more relevant in a current context in terms of talking about race and gender. But at the time, um, I think it was really more about two cultures and how different they viewed the authority of women and their role and, um, and what they were willing to accept or acknowledge. Because we know in terms of Roman law, in order to become a citizen, um, you know, you could be from somewhere else. And as long as you served in the army, you could become a citizen, right? So there were methods by which people could um, essentially gain uh, authority and be able to own land and control monies and um, gift uh, generational wealth, all of those kinds of things that we use to assess what the impacts are in terms of culture. Um, those are still playing out. It just, I think, um, you know, as Sherry, you said, it, it it feels like maybe at the time, I mean, calling her a gypsy, that certainly feels like a racial slur to me, um, but it doesn't feel super specific um, about her Alexandrian location, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, exactly. And indeed, uh, I'm, I, I may add to that that, for too long, uh, our view of the ancient world, of the ancient Mediterranean world, of the Roman world has been very Eurocentric. And uh, the, this conception that Romans were white and that the Egyptians were black. But uh, there are a lot of new studies, very interesting studies about uh, blackness in the, in the ancient world, the blackness in the, in the Roman world as well. So... There was there were different skin colors as well as in Egypt, uh, and uh, we don't know indeed who is the mother, the grandmother of Cleopatra. She could have been one of the many concubines that the Ptolemaic rulers had beside the main queen, and so she could have been an Egyptian woman from the south. Those the Egyptians from the south have darker skin than the Egyptian of the north. They are represented this different color of skins in in uh, Egyptian reliefs since uh, the second millennium BC, and for them was uh, uh, a way to recognize ethnic identity of the people uh, while they were moving through the Nile Valley or the neighbor country. But the the the, the issue of race, as we consider it and discuss it today did not belong uh, to to that particular time. They weren't we, racist, let's say that. And we don't know specifically a lot of probably at the time extremely well documented history because the the it was lost in the fires in Alexandria. So we are left to some retelling of history, and we have a, a very popular one is the Shakespearean treatment of Cleopatra. Um, Elkana, would you like to talk, uh, I'd love to hear you talk about kind of how that was for you, this treatment, how it was limiting, how uh, it was problematic, how you had to reconcile maybe your own personal belief about who Cleopatra was, the missing information, because in reading it, you know how she feels a lot, but you don't necessarily know what she's thinking was one thing I really missed. Like, this is a very smart, very, very smart. That's an understatement. Yeah, well, if you could speak to that. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess I, um, in looking at Shakespeare, um, I mean, she's one of his great characters in the entire canon in terms of roles that he wrote that were female. Um, she's like at one of the top, you know, in terms of levels of intelligence and savvy and political machination and, um, you know, empathy and capacity to love and uh, a complicated, you know, um, vain the whole thing about being, you know, uh, a queen and a human, which rests in all of Shakespeare, you know, that all of those royal stories, the conflict um, between being a human being and being a divine ruler, you know, is, is carried by all of those, those um, stories. So um, I didn't go to Shakespeare finding him lacking. I actually, the more I researched true his like they store and to you know the battle of Actium and donations of alexandria the more i came up surprised and delighted by the details that shakespeare had accounted for and really clearly had done his research i mean the, the difficult thing is that we just as you say don't have an egyptian account we really only have a roman lens which is um you know history is written by the victors and that's the reality sandwich of what we're dealing with um so um, there's vast amounts of space inside of what Shakespeare wrote um, to contain her infinite variety. And I think that that's so compelling and wonderful because, you know, she's such a complicated character and so rich and deep and faceted that you could never hit bottom, you know, in terms of the inventiveness and um, exploration of what she's capable of. And that's the kind of role that any performer wants to totally dig into. Um, I will say that as we investigated the Battle of Actium, Shakespeare does not give her specific reason why she bails. And then Anthony uh, follows, which was his you know, own discretion and decision that he made, uh, which was a failed decision, arguably on his part, but maybe not. You know, there's ambiguity that lies in, in those decisions, um, but we know that she carried the chest of wealth with her. And if she had forfeited um, that or, or gotten sunk, you know, that would have been the end of it. There would be no regrouping the battle another day. And so um, just to say that uh, leaving a battle doesn't necessarily mean, you know, losing the war or um, or whatnot. And unfortunately, in their case, um, it did lead to them losing fundamentally. But at the time, it could have been a strategic retreat. So, yeah. Um, she's tough and complicated and juicy. And that's what's so awesome about her character. <laughs> uh, let's take a moment to talk a little bit about how Cleopatra has uh, captured the popular imagination, how she's still very much alive today in anything from fashion to uh, stories to there's a new Cleopatra movie coming out. And how... that's interesting because Gal Gadot, you know, announced that she was going to be a part of that and she's Israeli and there was a whole backlash against, um, you know, a big storm on social media about representation and is that okay or is that problematic and is she just going to move into the role of producing and um yeah i mean clearly cleopatra is very much alive and kicking in the in the public imagination um and um i think speaking to sherry to your um comment earlier about race and how important it is now 
um, when you were asking us the other day, Aaron, like who is Cleopatra to each of us? Um, not that you're asking now, but I guess I feel like her, her mutability and her ability to fulfill a vision for kind of any woman, you know, no matter what she might look like or where she comes from, you know, that, that, that she can be such an inspiration and such, um, you know, a force is a huge gift in, in terms of like the bigger picture, I think, that it could ascend beyond um, race. We have just a couple minutes before we're going to take uh, questions, but I would love to hear how are there people uh, currently in in politics, in media, in in um, in economics who are manifesting the spirit of Cleopatra and who are they? I'm quiet. <laughs> it's an interesting question <laughs> at the moment because it's a lot. It's a lot to fulfill in a person. So you know, I'm I'm thinking of okay, savvy women. Yes, we have them across the board. Um, uh, um, uh, um, strategic women. Yes, there are some of those too. It's hard to be all of them. It's, who, it's hard to be all of who's them. Who's manifesting like, some of those? Seductress, right, exactly. Yeah. Relationships, that's what, it's like the other social things, that's where it's a little hard because savvy politicians normally don't come off of having multiple lovers, you know, and and all these other things because that's looked down upon politically. So I, I'm trying to rack my brain, but ladies, if you have an example... I mean, I, we talked in terms of um, the crafting of her public image and the authority that she carries, um, you know, beyond the sphere of music or performance or, and pop culture, just that, you know, the, the joke was among the designers, if Jay-Z and Beyonce broke up, who else could they be with? Because there's no one at that sort of stratospheric level in that rarefied air that could understand and appreciate person to person what it is that they have to um, balance and level every day. Um, and I think that Coachella, her documentary, which was extremely controlled and very like, you know, well articulated and uh, produced, uh, gave the impression of being sort of, you know, a personable documentary, but uh, was, you know, uh, an incredible strategic PR you know, acumen to the top level um, um, kind of uh, experience. And she continues to do that, you know, over and over again. So I know it's not in the sphere of like politics. And then you look at somebody like Oprah and everyone's like, is she going to run for president? Will she ever run for president? You know, I think she's patently said no, but um, you know, well, if, there you, if, are... <laughs> if you could meld of these people, Beyonce and, and Oprah and Angela Merkel and uh, the prime minister of Myanmar and right. There's not one person and Lizzo put some Lizzo in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it is interesting to think about um, also the lens of Western sort of prudishness and judgment that lies around the whole sphere of sexuality and the empowerment of a woman's ability to express 
or celebrate or really inhabit that space, which I think is the, the needle's been moving. We've got fourth wave feminism, there's a declaration, but it's like, you know, why is it that politicians can't be sexualized and, um, you know, have lovers or have children, you know, with multiple people? Like that's yeah. certainly not in the United States, but there are people who do that in other countries. <laughs> and and I, I like to think that there are a lot of Cleopatras around, uh, but only we don't know about them because nobody has been writing. Uh, well, so it's, uh, Cleopatra is really probably a bit everywhere around us, but we don't know. Absolutely. One is a biographer. I see that Cole is back and we might be taking some questions from the audience. Absolutely. What a great conversation this has been, everybody. Thank you so much. Um, it's been interesting to see that most of the questions coming my way, you all seem to then immediately answer. Um, <laughs> so I know you didn't know it was being asked, but you just had this magical gift of transitioning into the questions people wanted answers to. Um, one of which, um, actually several from several people, they really seem to be wanting a list of the people that are comparable to Cleopatra, both in history and contemporary times. And you were just discussing that. Um, but I think that was more of a, a contemporary lens that we were just using. So perhaps are there some names we can drop from history that are comparable to Cleopatra, either in her beauty and power or the way in which she was treated or mistreated? Well, Shakespeare's time, I mean, he obviously there's a powerful female monarch um, uh, ruling then. And obviously we just um, lost the queen here, even though she was she's sort of more of a figurehead than, you know, the exclusive political leader. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, history in England, there's definitely been notable women who have ruled. There's also Wu Zhao, who lived in uh, six, from 624 to 705 BC, and she was uh, the only female leader of a dynasty during a period of amazing uh, abundance and social services and social programs. She's, um, she's not mentioned much, but she was, she was it. And again, um, it comes so, back to our yeah. previous conversation prior to this particular, you know, meeting where it was like, who are these women? And why is it that we can only count them on maybe one or two hands? And that's fundamentally a problem. <laughs> well, I think it's a, that's problem a big because, problem <laughs> because um, Cleopatra is so pushed as a beauty. I mean, that's so problematic for me because she was probably such a compelling character that why wouldn't you be? totally uh excited about this person that makes anybody really attractive so when you try and that it's just not real right so there's plenty of people eleanor roosevelt amazing uh, joan of arc incredible woman mother well, Teresa. Some question about whether cleopatra really was such a knockout or if it was all of her you know rhetorical powers and you know intelligence because lord knows we all you know are attracted to people who are smart talented and funny and it might not be uh that their visage is such a knockout as much as their inner beauty emanates so i've always felt like that's part of cleopatra's story just for me personally that it wasn't about you know what she looked like on the barge from a distance floating down but it was in the encounter you know really with her mind and heart and spirit that 
you know, was so potent um, that it it overwhelmed. <laughs> but there's and a saying. Know, oh, just Go ahead, that, Rita. Um, this is not my opinion, but um, uh, once I remember, I found an article where Hillary Clinton uh, was considered a modern day Cleopatra. <laughs> Wait, Hillary Clinton? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I wondered if Hillary was going to come into this conversation. <laughs> um, because they question. were uh, connected to powerful, famous men. But mm. in oh. the case, it was like, okay. Interesting. <laughs> a, a final question for you all. And this is another concept that has come up a few times in questions and also in, in your own discussion. Why aren't men treated with the same scrutiny that our dear poor Cleopatra has had throughout history? Of course, there's no answer to that. Other than I don't that. know if it's scrutiny as much as speculation because we speculation, just don't know. Criticism. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure that she's only been, I mean, she hasn't only been played down. She's certainly been celebrated, I think, even inside of the play uh, that Shakespeare wrote. Um, so again, it's complicated. And I think, you know, you start to get into issues around even just talking about gender and somebody the other day said, you know, women can procreate, men can't. And then I was thinking later on a walk, well, we wouldn't be here without men too, right? Like it, it takes all of us. <laughs> so, it takes a village. Yeah, it does take a village. Um, and a final yes or no question for each of you. If Cleopatra did not have the beauty that uh, she was portrayed to. Um, would we still be talking about her? Do you think she'd still have the significance if it didn't come with that mysticism of beauty? I think we would, but it, it wouldn't have such um, um, vitriol about her. Uh, you know, you have Joan of Arc. So she would have been a strong figure like others. But I think because she had the beauty or she knew how to play that asset um, to its highest level, that that's why she is like kind of more renowned um, for being the forefront of leaning into all of her uh, strategic abilities and, and, and looks, sexuality, power, strategic thinking, um, relationships. So... I think she is just one of those who is on the top level of being interesting all the way around and not in just one or two dimensions. Absolutely. And I see the rest of you nodding for interest of time. I assume that that means you agree. Yeah. I, I agree, but I would also say maybe not, it's not her beauty, but it's uh, her kind of empowered sexuality, which is really like the new face of feminism now is so amazing from when I was a young woman. It's, it's really voluptuous. It's really using that in a positive way and not as in a way as a whore. So I would say it's not so much about beauty, but how she used her sexuality. Interesting. Thank you. Alrighty, everyone. Well, thank you to our audience for those of you that uh, posed some questions there. And I'm so glad that I think we actually answered all of them or almost all of them. Um, so on behalf of the Commonwealth Club and the Department of Diversity, Equity and Community at San Francisco Opera, a heartfelt thank you to Aaron Neff, Rita Lucarelli, Alcana Pulitzer and Sherry Young for taking part in today's panel discussion. We encourage you all to attend, if you have not already, San Francisco Opera's critically acclaimed world premiere of John Adams' Antony and Cleopatra. Currently on stage at the War Memorial Opera House, this production runs through October 5th. We also
We hope to see you at the numerous and exciting productions and events we have lined up throughout our centennial season. For tickets and more information, please visit our website at www.sfopera.com. And of course, we invite everyone to keep tuning in at commonwealthclub.org for an impressive array of thought-provoking content and programming. Again, the recording of our panel discussion today will be available later this month under the club's website's Watch and Listen tab. We are delighted that you joined us today during this, the Commonwealth Club's 119th year of enlightened public discussion. I'm Cole Thomas Enridis. This meeting is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.